Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Elixir 1.15 was released. So this is a cool one because it's all about compile time improvements and speed ups. So it is a smaller release. Like from the release notes, it says Elixir 1.15 is a smaller release with focused improvements on compilation and boot times. This release also completes our integration process with Erlang OTP Logger, bringing new features such as log rotation and compaction out of the box. What I thought was cool is if you stay with Elixir 1.15 and you pair it with OTP 25, you're going to get a boost. If you pair that with OTP 26, you get another bigger boost. Just as a reminder, Elixir LS, the Code Insight tool that we all are using and stuff within our editors like Visual Studio Code and others, it is still currently broken with OTP 26. So you still get a lot of the benefits on OTP 25, but that's just something we'll have to look forward to. With that, Jose Valim tweeted and shared that as people were trying it out and getting some first looks at it, there are some three times performance improvements for some people going from like 163 second build times to 51 seconds. So that is really cool. Yeah, that's pretty substantial. And alongside 1.15, they announced a new core team member. So that was shared that Jean Klingler, apologize for butchering your name, maybe, has joined the Elixir core team. So congrats. We have another person to share the load. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really cool. I was looking at PRs that they've done before and all very helpful stuff all, all over the place. So it's nice to have another contributor to the Elixir core team. Yeah. Another minor improvement in this release is that compiler warnings and errors got new formatting. So when you see those in your terminal, they might look a little different, but it's actually all good. Part of it is they're wanting to give more error reports in a single file as much as they can before they say, hey, we couldn't compile this. So, But it, it's, it restructures things, so you may notice that too. There's also a number of other minor improvements, helper functions that were added to a number of different modules. Not a huge release, not like a lot of breaking new stuff, but uh, it is totally a great release and it all seems to be around performance, which I think is going to be awesome. And boot up times even. The the change about the new formatting on the warnings and errors, it was, I don't know, maybe I'm making more out of it than I should be. But the PR comment was <laughs> to, let's be fancy by default. <laughs> Loved it. Should take that uh, little, little nugget of truth and apply it to our lives. <laughs> Speaking of releases, it looks like Phoenix also got some updates. 174, 175, 176 all came out rapidly one after another. And it looks like some of them are centered around fixing a little bug where live view channel sockets were not shutting down properly. There was a small bug where they weren't interpreting or receiving the signal to shut down and 174 corrects that. And then 175 fixes that same issue, but with long pull instead. And then 176 is just a tiny fix for WebSocket Adapter 053. What this is really all around is when you deploy a new version of your app and it's shutting down the old version and you have WebSockets open, you don't just want to like drop people's connections. So you want to slowly drain it out and not accept new connections. And there was a bug when the system signal that was being sent to say, time to shut down and clean up everything. It wasn't being handled quite right around WebSockets. So what was that happening is people were getting full page reloads instead of just reconnecting to the socket when it came back up. Oh, full page reloads. Man, Imagine. 1990s degradation there. <laughs> but that meant that they were losing some page state. If you've seen any of that with your deploys, definitely update and get a improvements there. All right. Speaking of the brighter wave of uh, future web technologies and people enjoying it, uh, long segue into the Stack Overflow developer survey has dropped. We have an updated result set. Uh, this year was all about AI. So if you took the survey, you would have noticed that like 80% of it was <laughs> like, how are you using AI stuff? But they do cover the basics too, like they do most years. For example, what frameworks are you using? What languages are you using? Which ones do you want to use? Which ones, you know, have you used? All that kind of stuff. So the results are in about Elixir and Phoenix. So the most popular technologies 
Elixir moved up two spots. That's amazing. Among the professional developers, it represents around uh, 2.65%. So still a very small segment of the market uh, in total, but it did move up and that's really great. And Rust, I think, continued to be the most admired language, the Elixir being number two. So that's really great. Another segment was the top paying technologies because, you know, money matters too. (laughs) (laughs) Erlang was number two. Elixir was number six. So we're in the top 10. And if you're curious what number one was, it's a new face. It's Zig. And I know that Elixir and Erlang have good interoperability with, with Zig. At least Elixir does with their library called Ziggler. So we have a good gateway to use and a good systems programming language like Zig. But interesting to note, of the top six languages in the chart, four of them were functional languages. So that's encouraging, I guess, right? Functional languages like us, we get we get paid a little bit more. Maybe it's harder. Maybe it's it's probably just less <laughs> less folks. To... I think it's more about you're able to solve bigger problems, so you're worth more. Sure, that we'll go with that. <laughs> and then the other two in the top six were Zig and Ruby. Ruby continues to be a good paying technology as well. The functional right, ones on I to... noticed were yep. Erlang, F Sharp, Closure, and Elixir, which I just thought was interesting. Yeah, F Sharp and Closure, like also two small languages. <laughs> <laughs> F Sharp in the Microsoft world and. Mm-hmm. Closure in the JVM. Yeah, J- JVM world. You're you're right. I was going to say science. I, I was thinking more like industry domain. I don't know where I got that, though. Fun fact, I think Whimsical uses Closure. All right. Under web frameworks, Phoenix is the top of both admired and desired. Okay, here's a, here's a quote from their survey. It says, Phoenix is the most admired web framework and technology. More developers would choose to work with Phoenix again than those that have used the three most common, React, Node.js, and Next.js. That was a really interesting quote. And that was by Stack Overflow, interpreting you know the results themselves. That's really cool. So no real movement for Phoenix, because I think last year Phoenix was all of that last year as well, but momentum continues. What's worth pointing out is these other frameworks are huge. React, Node.js, and Next.js, they are huge in numbers, right? Yeah. But what that was demonstrating is that if you're using Phoenix, you want to keep using Phoenix because you're very happy with it, is what they were identifying there. Mm-hmm. More so than with the three most popular and widely used languages or frameworks. You know, I seem to remember React being the most desired framework at one point back when nobody was using it. The tables have turned. all right and under professional developers phoenix received 2.3 percent of the data there for web frameworks which is a lot like elixir right still a very small segment but meaningful data that came out of that that's all the little nuggets that we pulled out from the survey but go check out the survey i'm sure you're going to find a lot of interesting data there especially if you're interested in ai data they've got a lot of that on this year's results And next up, LiveView Native got animated charts working using Swift charts. So it's a nice little pretty animation shared on Twitter. And I guess my question is, when do we get to play with this? I want to see a release of LiveView Native so I can actually try this out, but I don't know. Yeah, speaking of charts, we saw a blog post by Richard Taylor talking about how he used Apache eCharts with LiveView. So Apache eCharts is an open source JavaScript visualization library and it's been around for a long time. So he uses live view hooks with a canvas and he creates these pretty nice animations when you hover over or when they change. And there's a number of different chart styles. Really cool blog post. If you've been itching to get some cool visualization into your application, this is a nice little blog post to review. Yeah, I've been thinking about dashboard kind of stuff and thinking about visualizing charts and stuff like this. And then saw that and I was like, oh, that looks interesting. And and I can use it with live view. Definitely something I want to play with. Jose Valim wrote a blog post about deploying live book notebooks as apps to Hugging Face Spaces. And the post now appears on the Hugging Face blog as well. So this is helpful and important because Hugging Face has a wide audience, but it's a wide audience for spreading the awareness of live book and Elixir among the ML community. If you don't remember, one of the last releases of Livebook introduced the concept of Livebooks as apps. So more of a like a read-only, less of a notebook kind of interface, right? It's more like a playground of segments of code and seeing that work on a deployed version of that app. So pretty cool. Yeah, and Hugging Face is like the GitHub 
for ML community where you have models and LoRa's and all these different things available there to play with. So getting Elixir out in front of those people, making it easier for them to try things out with Livebook, that's really cool. Hopefully, you know, get more interest in what we're doing here with ML in Elixirland. And next up, another Livebook tip I saw. It was a, a cool little tip I want to pass along. If you want some detailed inspection in Livebook, like you see in IEX, IEX, you have all these helpers available where you can say like H and a function or I and some data, it will inspect it and give you information about it. If you want any of that in Livebook, you can actually just import IEX.helpers and then you have access to those little helpers. So you can do like I, you know, to inspect a type and have this nice little pretty breakdown on everything that's in there. That's just thought it was cool. Next up, Herman Valesco has shared a number of short tip videos, and we've talked about them in the news before. So he's been gathering them up, and he's now created a site where you can find them all in one place, and he calls it elixirstreams.com. We'll leave a link in the show notes if you're interested in checking that out, but it's handy for sharing with coworkers or finding that one from way back when, because I don't know about you, but I feel like searching through Twitter is a little hard. So now they're all organized in one little spot. All right, Bandit update, a quick Bandit update. Bandit is a pure Elixir HTTP server for plug and WebSocket applications. It's kind of a, analogous to Cowboy that we currently use in Phoenix by default. We actually interviewed Matt Trudell about using Bandit with Phoenix back in episode 128, so we've got a link there. The update is that using the Bandit web server in Phoenix is a lot easier than it used to be. It's so easy, in fact, that it fits in a tweet, a classic tweet, the small tweet, <laughs> where you just config the application's endpoint to use the bandit.phoenix adapter. And of course, you have to include the dependency of Bandit. The interesting part here is that you're including now 1.0-pre. That means we got a pre 1.0 version, which maybe implies 1.0 might be coming soon. We'll see. I know sometimes things can live in pre.1.0 for a really long time, so I'll hold my breath, but signs are looking good. Matt Trudell had a very clear roadmap on a 2.1.0, and he seems to be following through very well on his roadmap. So it might be coming soon. What I love about that is just the speed ups that you get using Bandit, just because it strips out everything that you don't need to do to be able to answer a request. And you pair that with like the 1.15 and OTP 26 with the faster compile times, faster boot up times, and then faster response times. It's like, wow, that's, that's a pretty good time to be in Elixir and Phoenix. And last up, just wanted to share that the EEF, the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, has a new events page. Well, at least it's new to me. So you can check it out at earlef.org slash events. And they have conferences, trainings, hackathons, and meetups listed there. So it's not a complete list because people have to submit their events there for it to show up. They're not like scraping the web and pulling them all together. So if you run a meetup, this can be another great way to get some visibility and discoverability. You just have to be logged in and the free basic membership is all it's needed to, to do that. Just want to put that on people's radar so they can see what events they might be interested in. But also if you're hosting an event, you can be sure to share it there. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Noah Betson. Noah, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> well, I'm glad you called in. We worked together when you wrote a blog post that we ended up putting on the Fly blog about using Dialyzer and bringing that to mature projects, right? You've got the project, you've got your team, you've already built this. And now like a year in, you're like, man, it would be nice if we could use Dialyzer with this. You try it that first time and you're like, oh, running away, screaming with the pages and pages of red errors. And like, I have no idea what to do. I'm just, I, I guess we just won't do that. That was my first experience, at least. And then I learned about this trick that you were sharing with like ways of actually adding this to our projects after we've already got the project going, maybe we've got a team of people. 
And how can we bring that in to get some of those benefits that we do want? We want some of those benefits. So I'm excited to talk to you about that and see what we can all learn from this. But before we get into that, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Thank you. My name is Noah, and I currently live just a bit south of the Seattle, Washington area. I work for a medium-sized startup doing electric vehicle charger orchestration. So everything from provisioning a charger, starting and stopping a charger, mostly for electric fleets. So electric vehicle fleets, companies like GM and Nissan and Bluebird were partnered with. So we will go in, set up chargers, provision them, get them set up on our backend system we call in control. And we'll be able to manage and track their charging and we also have some like security features so that not just anyone can plug into a charger. They need some authorization first. Yeah, all of our backends is Elixir and Phoenix. We we don't use LiveView yet, maybe potentially someday, but for now everything is everything on the front end is vanilla React. That's really cool. It's just neat hearing, you know, that you're using Elixir on the back end for that. That's probably a whole nother topic. I'd just love to hear how that works. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's all sorts of electric vehicle protocols like OCPP is a networking protocol that lets you communicate with the charger. So we've built our own OCPP infrastructure so that with Elixir, we can reach out to chargers and tell them to do things or tell them to stop things. We've got an elaborate set of logging and kind of infrastructure set up so that if a charger loses network, we can handle that. We also use RabbitMQ. So we've got a very elaborate queuing system for sending messages to and from chargers and it's all in we set it up such that it's very easy to do from elixir wow that's awesome yeah well i'm curious about how you actually end up coming to elixir what was your path to this language and ecosystem i was an intern for a small company in alaska that it was essentially in a managed service provider company we did it for companies but we also kind of had a burgeoning software sector so i was still in university at the time. And we were starting a new product that we wanted to eventually sell to customers. I don't even remember, honestly, what it did. But we were using Elixir initially for it. We ended up migrating it away from Elixir over to Go at the time. I don't even know if Elixir... Elixir may have just hit 1.0, or maybe it was Phoenix that just hit version 1.0. That was probably more likely. But that was my first foray into Elixir. And it wasn't until years later that I actually got to work with it full-time professionally. I went to my first Elixir conf was 2018 because that was in Bellevue. I wasn't even, I wasn't living in the Seattle area at the time, but I went to Elixir conf 2018. I got, I remember getting Jose to sign my Elixir programming book, the Elixir programming book. And yeah, I got to meet a lot of cool people, talk to a lot of cool companies. And that, that was around the time when I was like, I really need to find a full-time Elixir gig because this community is awesome. Yeah, that was a good conference too. I remember that one. Yeah, I remember I remember troll tweeting Jose after, I forget if it was his keynote or another talk where he has a slide that says, spoiler alert, we started working on a type system. And then uh -huh. the next bullet was, <laughs> yeah. we stopped adding a type system. <laughs> and so I tweeted a screenshot of it saying, oh, top 10 anime betrayals. And then uh, he mentioned that to me in person later saying that he laughed. So <laughs> even back then, I was thinking about types and type systems. And Jose has obviously been thinking about that since day one, I assume. Now that you've mentioned types, uh, I, mean, I mean, eventually we'll get there. But let's introduce a wider audience to what some common tools are and what your post is about, too. And the first word that people might hear is dialyzer. Can you tell everyone what dialyzer is doing? What is it? Yes. Dialyzer is a static type analysis tool. People may be confused about the difference between like a type system, a, a static analysis tool, etc. I'm also no authority on the subject, but essentially what it does is it's actually built into Erlang and we just get to use it via a binding called Dialyxer, which we'll talk more about. But Dialyzer essentially will scan your entire project look for your type annotations. It isn't looking at your actual functions. Well, to an extent, it's not generating your types for you, but it is looking at all of the types you have defined, all of the functions, all of the structs. And it is basically just checking that you are using the types you say you are using. So it'll spit out errors. 
some of which are uh, notoriously vague and confusing, <laughs> and it will report errors. Yeah. One of the things I just want to point out about Dialyzer is the way it works is it's compiling your code. So it's not analyzing the text of your code, like the source code files. It's compiling your code and then looking at like the byte code or what's compiled down into the beam. And it uses that and it's doing analysis at that level. But it's not actually doing a runtime analysis either. So it's not executing your program and saying, oh, how is it actually behaving? So it's just looking at what can it tell from the way it actually compiles. That's what Dialyzer is. It comes from Erlang. If you use Dialyzer directly, it's going to give you errors that are formatted with Erlang data structures. And you're like, what is this? I'm, I'm used to Elixir code. I don't understand this. That's a good place to introduce Dialyxer. What is that doing? Dialyxer is a essentially a wrapper around Dialyzer. And it's it's confusing because when you add Dialyxer to your project, the mix task you are running is mix Dialyzer. But just so people aren't confused, they, they are separate tools. Dialyxer will do things like it will translate what are essentially Erlang errors in some data structures into an Elixir-friendly format. So a lot of the errors you'll get are actual Erlang record types instead of structs, for example. So when people are bombarded with what are essentially just tuples, Dialyxer can translate some of them, not all of them, into more readable formats. It has a list of known errors. There's a, I think it's Mix Dialyzer Explain, which will give you more details on a specific error type if you are confused. And essentially, yeah, it's just a, a helper to make Dialyzer more consumable by Elixir projects. Cool. All right. So I want to figure out, like, why did you get involved with this? Like, what was your interest in wanting to explore Dialyzer, Dialyxer, and to start using it? What was the benefit you saw that was worth the effort? The reason I initially started looking into Dialyzer, Dialyxer, and all of these other tools I've mentioned in the blog post is I really like working with developer tooling. So anything that can increase slash benefits developer experience, developer productivity, are things I like to work on. And so when I initially started coming into Elixir, the biggest thing you'll read about very early is Elixir is a dynamically typed language, doesn't have a type system, and you will find endless flame wars online about what's better, static versus dynamically typed languages. And people will claim, oh, I've seen, I've seen so many posts online saying Elixir is a dynamically typed language, therefore I will not use it. <laughs> that kind of crowd, you know, there, maybe people are, and they'll say, they inevitably say, oh, Haskell or Rust or Go, they have static types, so therefore they are better somehow. That is not the case. They are different. But one thing that I like about Dialixer and Dialyzer and the type annotations in Elixir are that they are gradual slash progressive. You can add them at the beginning of a project, but you don't have to type your entire project just to get their benefit. And that's one of the things that led me to write the blog post is I say I say that, that it's easy to get started, but anyone who has tried to add Dialyzer slash Dialyxer to a project is very immediately overwhelmed with a cornucopia of errors that they have to figure out before they can even start benefiting from the tool. And I wanted to help reduce some of that friction. Yeah, and, and this isn't unique to Elixir and Erlang, right? This is common for front-end applications to five-year-old JavaScript application. You know, you get a group of developers together, they're saying TypeScript is the way, and even TypeScript is gradual. I don't know what it is about my luck, but when I come across these JavaScript to TypeScript migrations, they go all in very hard, <laughs> use strict <laughs> kind of stuff, right? And it's a huge, huge endeavor it is nice to know that, yeah, that this is gradual. You can be selective about where you're adding your types to like critical code paths, for example. You may not want to be so picky to put types on controller actions, for example, right? Or on other things that aren't exactly in your control. You're using a framework, right? Or you're doing something so common, right? You can do it in, in other places or you can go all in too. So do you have any tips on, you know, what it's like to add a dialyzer type annotations, all that kind of stuff to a project later in its life? Yes. Several months ago, in fact, I took on a, it wasn't even an official task and I wasn't 
I assigned to do this, but I brought up the idea to my team at InCharge. Hey, we use type annotations everywhere, but we aren't actually checking them. They're more of a form of documentation at this point, which is still good. But I suggested, how about we look into adding Dialyzer to our several Elixir-based... We have some monoliths and microservices, but I wanted to add Dialyzer to all of them. And so a couple of the architects and seniors, all of us got together, and I laid out a plan of how we would do this. The biggest negative that people pointed out was, we are going to have hundreds, if not thousands of errors across all of these different projects. And so I started investigating, how can I add these without everyone on my team hating me because of all of these errors? No one, even if we had added them without ignoring all of the errors, we would immediately be swamped with two weeks of work just to fix all of the types. There's a talk from Jesper Eccleson. Disclaimer that any names I say at this point, uh, if I pronounce them wrong, I apologize. Jesper Eskelson gave a talk at Codebeam Europe 2022 titled Slaying the Type Hydra or How We Went from 12,000 Dialyzer Errors to None. So I watched that talk. It was, well, I don't know, eight months ago, I think it was posted. And that was essentially the catalyst of me thinking, if a large company like Klarna can do it with all of their Dialyzer Errors, surely we can too. And his talk doesn't go into any specific details about how they implemented Dialyzer or how they ignored the errors. But I figured it's doable. I will figure out how to do it. And then I will report on my success or utter failure. Luckily, we were able to add Dialyzer to all of our projects using the method we'll talk about in a bit. And as far as I know, none of my colleagues hate me. (laughs) So I think my mission was a success. I did see this blog post on the fly blog and it inspired me to try it out because we also use specs and you know maybe a year old or so code base purely as documentation and so i thought what would happen if i ran this i ran it sure enough i got you know like a hundred errors which is not so bad but the very first error i looked at i immediately turned around and ran away because the error was like an ecto schema struct, for example, a user, and it was saying user.t does not exist. I was like, hold on a second. So what you're saying is you want me to add a type for a schema where I just define my types for the schema? I don't know if I want to do this. Never mind. And I, I backed out everything I had done. <laughs> Thank goodness for Git. <laughs> so, so in these type specs, you're you're referencing functions that didn't exist. <laughs> exactly. It's like list users will return a list of user.t. It's like user.t doesn't exist. I'm like, well, sure it does. It's a schema right there with all the fields and its types. <laughs> Did you end up like in using a library that like looks at your ecto schema and auto generates? Uh, I think there's a couple out there that do that. Did 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 you do that? No, that's what I'm saying. I backed out right then and there. So I was wondering, what do people do? I'm wondering, what do people do? Do people specify their schemas twice? Is this a thing? Or, or do people use these fancy libraries that wrap Ecto? And Yeah, uh, I'm, I mean, there's a couple of libraries. I'll, I'll see if I can pull them up. But yeah, it's like use typed, I think, is one of them. Typed might be a, a library that we've talked to a guest about already. And you use their macro instead, which will do both the type spec and the ecto schema. But there are like nuances to like ecto types versus like it's not always one to one to a type spec. So I'm sure that there's some additional configuration you might have to do. We'll drop some links to some more libraries that can do that. But that could be an easy way. But then again, it's a library, right? In all of my cases, and no, I'm curious what you do, but in all of my cases, I've I've just <laughs> I've just done the extra manual work and typed them all out, and that's fine. You know, I I don't typically work in big code bases with thousands of schemas where that's just too laborious. Another thing you can do is in your at least at least with ecto schemas, you can in your schema say at, at type t colon colon. And then you can do the percent underscore underscore module struct, and it will intelligently, I don't actually know if it's Ecto doing this or not, but it will essentially expand into a full type spec for your schema. Well, that's not so bad. Yeah, and I don't know if there are caveats to that. There are there might be some things it misses, but I think because essentially the Ecto schema DSL, it w- eventually expands into an entire type 
the at type annotation declared before your schema will intelligently be correct. Well, there you go. There's a tip for those of you who want to jump into it, don't want to manually type every single struct to get started. But that is one of the interesting things. Like if, if people are using specs for documentation, I found like when I first started doing that, it was a couple, several years ago. And, you know, you don't understand really what you're doing and what's valid. And you end up writing this stuff that's terribly incorrect. But you think somehow it's useful as, as documentation. But like the computer says, I don't know what you're talking about with this. So like that's when you start to realize when you start running dialyzer, it's like, hold on. You, you got to be a, a little bit more clear here. You got to actually be correct. That is one of the challenges people may run into. If they are using specs and they have not been running dialyzer at all, they may find some of their specs are wrong. Or like Cade experienced, we haven't described the types for these things that we're referencing. So like that's, that's one of the errors you're going to run into. I'm sure there are other errors that you're going to encounter too. Just like that uh, a common one I've seen is that a function raises an exception and so you have a no return that needs to be declared as saying that this might actually not return a tuple or a, a result. So things like that. We can talk a little bit more about that later. But what is this hack, I guess, or tip that you figured out for how to get over that? I'm starting to use it. I've got hundreds of errors on my page and I want to make it usable. Like so many things in life, the easiest way to deal with a problem is just to ignore it. <laughs> so essentially the method, and this is kind of a unique thing of Dialixer, is that Dialixer supports a ignore file, essentially. It's similar to a, you know, a .git ignore or a dot .whatever ignore, but this one is for dialyzer errors. And there are multiple different formats you can use. You can use a regex to ignore all of a specific functions, errors, or even down to like a given directory. There are some nuances about how you format it, but those are mostly explained in the docs. I'm actually working on a PR right now to kind of improve those docs a bit and explain them more clearly. If you're bombarded with 500 errors, or um, like Kate said, 100 some, then you can just ignore them. And then when you run mixed dialyzer, you get a nice green success message and no errors. It helps that these type specs and error messages are, there's probably, even if you have like a, a high number of like 200 errors or something, there's probably four types in there repeated like 60, 70 times. <laughs> and so that's where these ignore rules can be really helpful is, you know, maybe it's one particular file that seems to be wrong. And so like 60 files that are compiled, have compile time dependencies on it are like complaining about it. Right. So even though it's 60, 70 errors, it's one fix. And then boom, you've just knocked out a bunch of errors or, or you use a regex rule to like ignore the whole, the whole class of error there. But yeah, I've definitely done that. I've Dialixer gives you that ability to ignore things, uh, ignore these, uh, these kinds of errors. So that's where a Dialixer comes in to help, but very good way to start adopting it slowly. And then just, you know, like don't forget, get that they're all ignored <laughs> or when you have a low like an off week or something and you, you've you've done all your jira tickets and i needed just a chore kind of thing yeah go look at the dialixer ignore file and uh go knock some out well, it puts you in a good place because then at least you're not adding new ones right like you you should at least stop once you've committed you should stop adding new ones and stop making the problem worse and then you can slowly pick away at the existing problems yeah, and that's the concept that Jesper mentions in his talk of, you know, they had, Klarna had 12,000 dialyzer errors, and they started by ignoring them all, and then chipping away at them as they went. At least in Charge's case, I'm toying with the idea of even just, you know, creating tickets for specific types of errors. Like, if any of these errors mention this function or this module, ticket all of these up and address them as we go. But it is essentially a form of tech debt. So by adding dialyzer, by ignoring all of these errors, you are just adding more tech debt. But again, like all tech debt, you know, part of the idea is in the long run, we want to have no type errors, no ignored errors. And that essentially is the, the ideal state. And it's also worth mentioning that like ignoring the errors is bad, but it's either ignore the errors or don't use dialyzer at all and don't check your types at all, which is also bad. So in the Elixir forum post that Mark made for the blog post, John Hogberg 
again, name pronunciations are hard, is actually on the Erlang core team and says, quote, it's also worth mentioning that Dialyzer will not analyze beyond errors because that state is absurd and cannot be reasoned about. Ignoring the error merely suppresses the message. This can suppress other errors or magically bring new and incredibly difficult ones into existence. So it's not like ignoring these errors is safe by any means, but if the choice is use Dialyzer and have a billion errors and have everybody hate you or not using Dialyzer, <laughs> I think this is a, ha a somewhat happy middle ground as long as you agree with your team to chip away at the errors and stop ignoring them in the long run. It's just something that's good to be aware of, right? If I ignore a Dialyzer error on a deeper function that's used in a lot of places, those places where it's being used Dialyzer can't understand how it's being used there because you're saying, well, you said it was doing this and it's not doing that over here. And it can cause like these second order errors. And those are the ones I think where John is saying, you know, it makes these harder to understand. I guess my approach then would be just using some awareness of my app, try and fix some of those most core modules first, the ones that are being used everywhere else. If I'm going to ignore everything, then I'm going to start maybe just by what is the core ones, like my user model, maybe that's used everywhere, my user struct, or uh, like a, some core contexts that are used everywhere. Fix some of those first is probably where I would approach that. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Like you guys went through this example too. The easiest way, at least when running Dialyzer slash Dialyxer, it will order the er the warnings. It calls them warnings. Sometimes it calls them warnings. Sometimes it calls them errors. I'll use the two interchangeably. Dialyzer is smart enough to order the error messages that you get from like more core to less core, at least at the module slash file level. So if you have six errors in a single file, it's probably best to scroll up to the top of that list and fix the first one. And then the other five could just disappear afterwards. It depends what it is. It depends if you're using, you know, the more macros and fancy things you're trying to do, the more difficult it will be. But in general, you can start at the top of the list and work your way down and keep rerunning it every now and again. You should get fewer and fewer errors each time. Another little hack I did, there was a way to generate the errors and output that into a text file so that I could, rather than scrolling back, I could have a separate little file that I'm, you know, my text file of error and reports that I can kind of work from and starting from the top. Well, so I think we've addressed like the main thing that people are going to encounter when they start using Dialyzer is just they get all these errors and it can feel overwhelming. So we have this tip on how to get started by ignoring all of those. So we can just say, I want to prevent adding new errors going forward, and then I can slowly whittle it down. I think the second thing that worth talking about is we teased it at the beginning is just that some of these errors can be super cryptic. And they can be very challenging to even figure out of like, what is Dialyzer trying to tell me? And that's it, its own separate topic. Like you could probably write a whole book about it. A number of people have even talked about this, like in presentations and things like that. But I think it's worth addressing that, right? Just saying that there are situations like maybe I have a feature I've got to deliver this week and this super cryptic error comes up. And normally, this is new code, I would not want to ignore a new problem. But maybe for this case of productivity and getting something out the door, I need to just ignore this one right now. Is that an okay approach? It's no different than adding some new piece of tech debt, or maybe you write a unit test and it's failing over and over. And so you skip that particular test. It's a form of tech debt. And at least if it's in a, you know, dot dialyzer ignore file, it's a form of tech debt documentation. Nobody likes tech debt, but sometimes you just need to ship the thing. There's also several resources. I link them in the blog post, but there are at least three or four talks slash blog posts about purely just about understanding dialyzer errors and how to fix them. Like you said, they can be very cryptic, especially the one you mentioned earlier about uh, no return. Maybe you've got like a 50 line function and and you, you've combed over it five times and you're like, no, this will always return. What, what are you talking about, Dialyzer? <laughs> I forget who said it. I think it's, it might've been Sean Cribbs or Stavros Aronos, Aronis. They have linked talks in the blog post, but they said, Dialyzer is always right, but sometimes either I'm misunderstanding Dialyzer or Dialyzer is misunderstanding me, me as in the types I have written. 
So it's it's a careful dance, which some people might look at that dance between you and Dialyzer and think, oh, this is this is instantly a no for me. This is a negative value add. Even Chris McCord says in a, an old Elixir forum post, Dialyzer as it exists today is a net negative value add for me. I only use it if forced. In principle, it checks out, but in practice, it always costs more than it saves. So things like that are why I decided to start ignoring errors first and fixing them over time. And maybe at the end of the day, once my team has fixed all of our dialyzer errors, we're not ignoring any, maybe I'll do a retrospective and see like, okay, in my opinion, uh, has this been a, a boon or a negative? Like, are we better off in this mythical future than before I started? And the answer might be yes. Maybe I decide later, yeah, it's not a great value add. But hopefully by then, Elixir will have its magical new progressive type system set up. Who knows? Who knows what tools will exist in that future? Yeah. Before we talk about the future of types, I want to mention that Dialyzer is built on this concept of success typing, which once you understand this, it's like, oh, I get it, which is that Dialyzer makes the assumption that your code works as it's written. And it's only going to tell you that something is wrong when it can provably say something is wrong. So it will miss things and not tell you about something that it's not 100% sure about. These error messages will say that this does not work according to the success type. And you're like, what does that mean? A lot of times it means like the way you've written it and you're assuming it's going to work. I assume that that will be successful, but I can prove it's not going to work in this case. That's just a good thing to be aware of to get in your head when you're reading some of this stuff. But something I've seen in projects is when you have people, especially coming from other languages, in their Elixir code, they might have like, just in this function body, I'm going to pattern match on like an okay and user equals and I'm calling a function. And so they're doing a pattern match saying, I expect it to be an okay and a user. Like that's fine in Ruby code because there's no pattern match. It's just like I'm assigning the user. But if you're doing it in like Elixir code and you're doing a pattern match, if that function could possibly ever not return a user and maybe an error and a reason, maybe that user doesn't exist by how you're searching it, then it's a no match error. And that ends up being an exception. And then you get like these no returns. And so like when you're looking at your code, you're, you're not seeing these places where I'm explicitly doing an inline, a match, and just assuming that it will always work. But my function says it may not return the thing that I want. And then I get an exception. So just little things like that take some time to get your head around. But in the end, you actually end up with better code, right? Like, oh, I should do a case statement here because I might not get my user back. And what do I want to happen then? Yeah. And like John mentioned in that comment, by ignoring errors, you are only suppressing the message. You're not making the errors go away. If you're adding new code that is using some of these previously defined types, you're still going to get errors, and they might even be more confusing because they won't show up in your mixed dialyzer output anymore, but they will be related to another type error that you have elsewhere. This is a good candidate for actually fixing some of your type errors as you go. So if you're writing a new module that uses other types, you've got a bunch of new errors, and uh, your options are ignore them or try to fix them try to fix them. So if they're related to a type defined in another file that's already being ignored, you'll have to work around that and, you know, unignore them. One thing I'll do is if I'm trying to fix type errors, I will just comment out everything in my ignore file so that I get all of the errors as Dialyzer expects and then start looking for any errors that mention a specific type or a specific function and go from there and then, you know, uncomment the ignore file and see which which ones have gone away and which ones have been added. It's it's not the easiest process, but it's better than ignoring all of your errors and trying to fix new ones that are related to the old ones. It's a delicate game, but it is doable. Yes. And we don't need to talk about this because we're coming up to time soon. But in the blog post, you also mention how to add dialyzer to my CI, to my process because the, the one thing we have to be aware of when we start to try to add this maybe to our GitHub actions is Dialyzer needs to build a PLT, this persistent lookup table that's, it can take, depending on the hardware, it could take like 15 minutes to build this. And it's going to cache it. And you got to be able to cache that on your CI server, or it's going to have that, the cost of that rebuilding it every time 
it's going to run these checks. And that's just a deal killer. So yeah, I was going to point people to the post where you talk about that. Before we run out of time, I want to make sure we get to talk about like, we may be getting a type system. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that and just like what that could possibly mean for us. Yeah, Jose did another podcast episode with, I'm going to butcher their names again, but uh, Guillaume and Giuseppe about the future of types in Elixir. And they talk about this potential, maybe not so potential syntax using a dollar sign for actual compiled types that are separate from type specs. And I have no idea what that would look like. I don't know if those would replace type specs altogether. I don't know if they would render tools like Dialyzer and Dialyxer unnecessary, but I'm excited to see how that works. One nice thing is that I can imagine, you know, I've I've spent all this time adding Dialyzer to my existing project. Why would I do that if in the end all of these types get translated into actual Elixir types using this dollar sign syntax? At the worst case, you've spent a lot of time understanding your code and your types, and that presumably will be translatable slash applicable when you go to add actual progressive types that come in some future Elixir version. So it might seem like a waste of time, but I don't think understanding your code and your types and what's going on in your system is a waste of time necessarily. What I think is also worth pointing out is just if we're actually applying and trying to fix some of those problems, it's not just fixing type annotations, just saying, oh, this type should be structured this way and it has this thing. It's not just that. We're actually fixing bugs, right? That we didn't account for this situation that's a common one, like a case statement where you say it could be an okay or an error, but then you forget that there's a third option that's being returned by this function, and that will be a no match error. So you actually are fixing and finding bugs. Again, the like we've said, the entire purpose of this is developer productivity, fixing bugs, shipping software, and whether it's Dialyzer slash Dialyxer or this new type system that could slash will come to Elixir, they're all just tools to help us do our job. So whatever helps you do that job, who cares? Like, as long as you've got the tools you need. If you need a fancy keyboard, if you need a fancy microphone, if you need a fancy chair to do your job, then those are tools. Dialyzer and type systems are mostly no different. (laughs) A good comfy chair always makes me code faster, or for code longer, at least. You mentioned tools, so developer tools. And my primary interface for type specs and the validity of them and dialyzer and all that isn't necessarily CI. CI is a good part. It's a good part for like enforcing that across the team. But my primary interface for that is actually through my language server, Elixir LS right now. We don't need to go in deep, but I do want to talk about like the integration between Elixir LS and what some other tools might be there in the future. Maybe now, I'm not sure. You helped me learn about one of them called Lexical. All right. Can you Tell me about some of these extra tooling, you know, that might be serving as a good interface to Dialyzer. Yeah, most people are familiar with Elixir LS. They might also be familiar with Visual Studio Code or NeoVim errors about how your language server has crashed. (laughs) Elixir LS is a great project. I think I sponsor Wukash, the main developer on it on GitHub. And it's a great project, but it's old. It's changed hands several times. Just looking through the PRs and issues, it's difficult to maintain for the most part. So bless you, Wukash, for all of your work. There are other Elixir language servers that are currently in development, one of which is Lexical, another which I think you guys have talked to Mitch before about NextLS. Lexical was started by a guy named Steve Cohen, who's pretty active on the, I think he's also, he's also a moderator on the Elixir Discord. And essentially, it was just created because people were trying to contribute to Elixir LS and coming up with some friction. So they figured, you know what, let's try making our own. Lexical supports, you know, go to definition, you can install it into your editor. I haven't done that in a while since some earlier versions of it. I I don't know if Steve or the team behind it would even call it quote unquote production ready, but it exists. It's actively being worked on. There could be others that I've missed, but we got Elixir LS lexical next ls so regardless of dialyzer and the future of types in elixir uh, we've got plenty of tools to pick from and lexical and next are two to keep an eye on 
Yeah, next LS is probably too early at this point. I think it's still in the planning process right now, right? Lexical, if you go to the, their GitHub, and we'll drop links to this, the feature says context-aware code completion, as you type compilation, advanced error highlighting, code actions, code formatting, and a completely isolated build environment. So that's, uh, that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty uh, near complete, at least. And I'm sure it is missing some. Uh, and I'm sure it is also uh, evolving at, at, a, at a decent speed here, implying frequent break- breakages, maybe, right? <laughs> but maybe not unlike Elixir LS, which is currently broken on LOTP26, <laughs> as, as of today, anyway. But okay, good. These are some good tools to consider for surfacing the dialyzer errors today and maybe in the future this new dollar sign type system that we might get. And I'm guessing, I don't know if they said it, I'm going to guess that it's Elixir 2.0 kind of stuff here. I might be wrong. We'll see. Did he say that? Does anyone know? I don't recall him making any promises, most likely extremely on purpose. Right. Who knows? Uh, I'll have to go back and listen to the podcast, pick out any Easter eggs or spoilers, but I don't know (laughs) if it's been officially announced yeah, I, I don't know either. Okay, so in my heart, it might be Elixir 2.0, but we'll see what the real world says. <laughs> well, Noah, I appreciate you taking the time to talk through with us how you and your team were able to add Dialyzer late in the game on a project. The quick question is, before we close out, has that gone okay? Obviously, you're probably not to the point where it's zero errors, but has the team been okay with it? Like, what kinds of feedback have you gotten? So far, the feedback from my team has been good. Every PR that I review that has a couple lines removed from the ignore file, those always get like a heart emoji from me or a funny relevant GIF. We have fewer dialyzer ignores than we did when we started. We're still not at zero, but we are picking away at them. And there have been several PRs that people have worked on where they do have a weird error that they can't fix or figure out how to fix. I'll try to reach out and help them preemptively if I can. But there's been a couple times where we've had to add new ignored errors, and that's okay. Overall, we have fewer than when we started by a decent margin. I don't have numbers off the top of my head, but that's the goal. And there have been several times where it's pointed out potential bugs, like you said earlier, where we're handling a bunch of different error cases in a statement and we forgot about one. There is a type of error that we forgot. So we'll make a test for it and add a type for it and then add a case or something like it. So, so far, I think it's a net value add. It's not a perfect setup, but it works and it's helped us prevent several new bugs and people seem to like it. And as far as I know, nobody hates me. Well, I think that's great. And I'm glad that we've talked through how other people can at least begin to experiment with this. And maybe Cade will actually come back from this and say, maybe I'll take one more look at that and see if, see about adding that user type. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, if people want to get in touch with you or follow up or have any questions, where should they go to do that? I'm Nezteb on pretty much every platform. Spoiler alert, it's, it's nothing creative. It's just my last name backwards. But I'm on Twitter, genserver.social, GitHub, the Elixir Slack, the Elixir Discord, the Elixir Matrix chat room, pretty much everywhere. Just search Nesteb, you'll find me. <laughs> That's a lot of places to monitor. So. <laughs> I don't mind. I have notifications, so I I don't watch them 90% of the time, but I'll get pings if, if they're there. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. <laughs>